The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, so we are so excited that you've chosen to join us this morning. Um, couple things to remind you of. Uh, I wore this shirt, not just because it's comfortable, uh, but also so that next week if you attend in person, you're able to see these shirts, see someone that's wearing one and know that they're there to help and they're there, there to help guide you where you need to be and just help you stay safe as you uh, attend the service with us. Also, uh, I did want to highlight once again Project Apple Tree and Backpack Buddies. We support both uh, both organizations that put this on. So Backpack Buddies helps provide school supplies for Temple ISD students, but also Project Apple Tree, uh, put on by Helping Hands, helps support Academy and Belton students. So if you can make sure that you go to the hub of our website, even now, I don't care if you do it while I talk, it's okay, go to the website, Go to the hub and please sponsor at least one of these children. We have about 50 or so left of backpack buddies, and we also have 50 Project Apple Tree kiddos that need to be supported this week. And for backpack buddies, the deadline is tomorrow. So please do that quickly and support these kids in need as they get ready for school. So we're continuing our study in Psalms, the book of Psalms called Swells, and today we're looking at a fun, cheerful passage, Psalm 51. Uh, If you're familiar with that chapter, it's not that fun and that cheerful. Uh, It's all about repentance and restoration. So if you wanna turn in your Bibles there to Psalm 51, I'll give you a little bit of the background uh, of the chapter. So this chapter comes out of David and his sin with Bathsheba was the root cause of this resulting chapter in Psalm 51. Uh, Many of you may know the story already, but to summarize, David was supposed to be out in battle uh, with uh, the other warriors from his kingdom. He was supposed to be out there in battle, uh, but he chose to stay home. And he chose to stay home, and during that time, uh, he was on his rooftop, and he saw a woman and gave in to this temptation of this woman who was married and uh, committed adultery. And as a result of this adultery, uh, David knew that he needed to cover it up. He needed to make it look like uh, he hadn't done anything wrong, so he calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from the battle. And he encourages him to be with his wife and to spend time with his wife and have relations with his wife. But Uriah, being the faithful soldier, being the one who stayed committed, being the honorable man, he said, no, all my men are out there fighting. I'm just going to sleep at the king's gate. So he stays there. And David tries to coerce him, tries to get him uh, to do this. And he says, no, I'm going to stay faithful to my men. He goes back out to the battle And David realizes, I need to cover this up. I need to do something here. So he takes drastic measures because when we sin and when we fall into temptation, when we give in to that temptation, we just have to cover things up, create more elaborate schemes to cover up. And here David is doing this and he gives orders for the men to fight. And Uriah's men go out to fight and they're in the heat of battle. And David gives orders for everybody else to retreat without Uriah knowing and he's killed in the battle. So this here leaves David a murderer and an adulterer in the process. And so 
as he's doing this sin, as he's committing this sin, he, um, he has this experience where Nathan is sent, the prophet is sent to confront David about his sin. And that story can be found actually in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan confronts David and he comes at him and he says, hey, I'm gonna tell you a little story. He has this creative story that he tells about a rich man who had tons of herds and flocks and was well off. And then there was this poor man who had one little ewe lamb, which was just a a small female lamb. And this man, he decided that he was going to take what this poor man had. He didn't have enough that he had all these herds and flocks, more than he could ever count. But yet he decides, well, I'm going to take this guy's little lamb also. And Nathan tells this story to David and and I'm sure Nathan could see David's blood boiling and getting angry and thinking, how dare this man do this to this poor man who had one little lamb. And so he asked David, "What, what should be done to this man? What do you think should happen to this man? And of course, David exclaims, this man should be judged. He should be killed for this action. And then Nathan answers in verse seven in 2 Samuel 12, he says, you are the man. Nathan told David, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, rescued you from Saul. I gave you your master Saul's house and his wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it weren't enough, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise my word by doing what I considered evil? You had Uriah the Hittite killed in battle. You took his wife as your wife. You used the Ammonites to kill him. So warfare will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So here David stands guilty. David's confronted by the prophet with his sin and it reminds me of Numbers 32, 23 that talks about the fact that you need to be careful because your sin will find you out. Many of you live long enough to see your sin find you out. You try to hide it, you try to cover it up and it just finds you out. You continue to cover, you continue to hide, you continue to kind of lie and whatever you need to do to get past it but your sin always finds you out. You know, we may not like these men and women in our lives, but we all need Nathans in our lives. We all need those people in our lives who aren't yes people, who don't just tell us what we want to hear, tell us all the good things about us, you know. But we need people who will stand up and actually speak truth to us. And unfortunately, many of us, including myself at times, have surrounded myself with people who only tell me the good things. Unfortunately, I didn't marry somebody like that, so that's a blessing. Sometimes it doesn't feel like one because I get confronted, but the reality is we all need those people. And David needed Nathan to step into his life and confront him with his sin. It's important for us to understand that the gospel has no real power in our lives without repentance. The gospel can exist and the gospel can be in our lives, but without true repentance, there's no power. What does that power of repentance look like? You look at this story. 
You look at Psalm 51 and you see that repentance transformed this horrible act of murder and adultery into a song that choirs would sing for years and years to come. It transformed adultery and murder into a song that we are discussing today in 2020. It's the power of repentance is amazing. When thinking about David's horrific actions, Tim Keller points out this concept. We think, I've never done anything close to what David did. He says, if David, a man after God's own heart, was capable of this, what makes you think you're immune? Oftentimes, even as a pastor, I go through life thinking, well, I got this thing together. I'm studying the scriptures. I'm getting ready to prepare a talk or whatever it is, and I got this, right? I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in in a home full of Christians, yet the reality is I'm one step, one decision away from this horrible act. We all desperately need repentance in our lives. So we think about the term repentance, we realize if you look into it, you realize it's a military term. It's a military term to to start facing one way and do a complete about face, a 180 degree turn. And so repentance isn't the idea of saying, telling God I'm sorry, I knew I shouldn't have done that, but continuing on the path of destruction that you're on or continuing leaving, uh, bringing people around you that, that bring you into temptation. Instead of it's a a turning away from. So today in this chapter, we look at five actions David took in his journey of repentance. The first action is that David acknowledges who God is. Look at verse one and two. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So here's David. Kind of reminding God who he is. He's reminding him of his characteristics. This is such a great pattern to follow when it comes to us and our relationship with God, especially when it comes to repentance. His first cry is upon God's unfailing mercy. The idea that we don't get what we do deserve. His first call is have mercy. Then he reminds God of his unfailing love. Now, I'm sure many of us have experienced failing love in our lives. We've had those relationships that don't quite last, those relationships that don't quite make it, and we thought it was the one, he or she was the one, and it was all going to be great, and, and then we realize, man, they failed, or maybe you failed. We've all had failures in love, but we can continue to count on the fact that God's love, Jesus' love, never, ever fails. Then he asks for a blotting out and a a washing and a cleansing of his sin. And uh, when I was thinking about this, when I was preparing this sermon, even two weeks ago, uh, it was funny how timely things work out in your family. As I'm reading these verses and preparing uh, for this talk, uh, my wife had asked my son to go out to the garage and wash the back window of the car. See, we went uh, to Pine Cove and uh, we always draw on the back of our window with those paint markers, which I absolutely hate because I have to get a razor blade to scrape the stinking paint off the window. 
So my wife asked Noah, sorry, I wasn't supposed to say his name. Uh, my wife asked one of my sons uh, to, to go wash the window of the, the car. And so he goes out there and washes, washes the window. And this is why, I don't know if you can see it very well, but it's just a, a, just a cloudy mess. And he actually goes out, he's sent out to do it again. I don't know if any of you can relate here. Uh, but I know I did this to my dad. And you go out to do the project again, right? And it's still not done right. Now, it's probably my fault because as a dad, I didn't show him how to do it right. So Noah, you know, it's probably my fault, but not really. Uh, so the funny thing about this is you just see this cloudy mess. And you can't see the words anymore. You can't see the actual words, but you still see a mess. And oftentimes when we see our sin and, and we, we give in to temptation and, and we sin against God and we sin against others and we repent, but what we do is we let this cloud, this, this mess continue to haunt us. And this guilt and this shame never allows us to be free. And it never allows us to see that what David's asking can happen in repentance. That a thorough washing, a cleansing, a complete blotting out, there's no remnants. You can't see any of that mess anymore. And this is what David's asking for. A complete removal, a blotting out, completely gone. We often, we linger over our guilt and our shame instead of embracing the fact that it's gone. The second action of repentance is that David understands his need for cleansing. Look at verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so what, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. Did my mother conceive me? Behold, your delight in, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. See, David has come to grips with the far-reaching effects of his sin. One of my teachers growing up when I was going to school always said that I should be a lawyer. Said that you're always arguing your case and you actually make it sound good uh, because I was supposed to be in certain places and I was supposed to be doing certain things, but I had this unique gift of even convincing her that I really wasn't supposed to be there. And so it was this uh, unique ability, uh, I would maybe now call it sin, but at that time I was trying to justify myself. I was trying to make myself look better than I really was, but here David is standing before God and he's doing the opposite. He's not justifying himself. He's laying it out before God. He's seeing his guilt as God sees it, no longer being able to justify. You know, you can do that with your parents, with your friends, your teachers, maybe your coworkers, your boss. You can justify things, but with God, he sees everything. Just like it goes back to Adam and Eve all the way back there. When they try to justify, when they try to place blame, and the reality is we just need to stand there guilty. You ever gone before a judge on a traffic violation or maybe something small like that? You ever just stand before the judge and say, yep, I did it. It's me. Yeah, you can see in the camera, <laughs> that's my car, right? 
No, most of us are there trying to not pay the fine, even if we're guilty. We're standing there probably knowing, yeah, I probably did ease through that stop sign, right? Or I was going a little over the speed limit. But instead, we find ways and, and issues. There was a tree in the way, or that person didn't slow down, or they were going faster than me. And there's all these things we do, right? To make ourselves not guilty, But here, David's standing before the judge saying, I'm guilty. Tim Keller talks about this idea of educating our conscience with the truth of God's word. It's an interesting concept that we have a conscience and this conscience helps guide us, but our our conscience isn't, isn't naturally just spiritual and biblical. The actual conscience needs to be guided and educated with the truths that are found in God's word so that when we come to decisions and we come to even problems or issues where we've sinned and, and sinned against someone or sinned against God, we don't justify anymore. We don't try to make ourselves look better than we really are because instead of our own conscience trying to say, well, he did it worse or she did this or they did that, in reality, according to God's word and the truth found there, we're guilty. We're guilty according to God's word and we need forgiveness and we need to repent. It's kind of like I implore my junior high students over and over and over again, it's not a good idea to follow your heart. It's a horrible idea to follow your heart. It's a horrible idea to justify yourself in your own thoughts and your own actions because the reality is, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So instead of justifying, David comes to grips with his sinful nature in verse 3. He confesses his sin, he takes responsibility, and so the blame game just stops right there. And then it comes to verse four. He says, you and you only have I sinned. And this sounds a little sketchy because uh, David obviously sinned against other people, right? This isn't just against God. He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against the soldiers, he sinned against his family, he sinned against a lot of other people, but in this regard, in this respect, in this chapter, he's trying to, kind of trying to focus on the idea that the one, the main one that he sinned against, and that's why he says you and you only, it's a Hebrew expression, and we use it as well, of repetition, of helping us realize the source or the main cause, the, the main uh, judge of our sin. And so here in this sense, he's actually speaking to God. He's saying he trampled on God's unfailing love and compassion. He's not here disregarding other people he sinned against, but his focus in this song is God himself. David in verse five, he doesn't blame his upbringing. He actually describes our spiritual state as sinners. And when we come out of our mother's womb, that we are sinners, that you don't have to look far beyond a one or two-year-old interaction with each other, maybe at school or at church or wherever it is on the playground, and you don't have to look far to see that we're sinners, right? For those with kids, even when they're little, before they can even speak a word, they sin against one another. They hit each other. They steal things from one another. They throw tantrums. They throw food at their mom and dad, right, as they're trying to feed them. And so 
we realize that this sin is not from an upbringing, but it's just what is in us. And the third action of repentance, David grips the result of cleansing. Verse seven and eight, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He sees the result, he grips the result of cleansing. When he says whiter than snow, first thing I think of when I think of that is growing up in the Northeast. And growing up in Philadelphia, we did have some snowfall. And especially when it's during the school year, it was always horrible when it would snow when you're already on break as a kid. But then when it would snow when you're supposed to be in school, especially on a Monday morning, and you wake up on a Monday morning, you're supposed to be at school, and you look out the window, it's just pure snowfall. And it's just white everywhere. It's just clean white, and you just see it. Not a speck of dirt that you can see, even though Philadelphia can be a nasty place to grow up. It's like this snow just covers it and makes it all clean again. And that's kind of what I picture when I see that term whiter than snow, but the reality is everybody starts to wake up, Everybody has to go to work, so that, like Texas, it doesn't all shut down. We actually still do things when it snows. And so we get out there and we drive our cars, the plows come along, and we drive our cars and the exhaust comes out and it just starts to become nasty. And instead of being whiter than snow, it's just soot and it's just dirt mixed with white stuff and it's just, it's just really gross by the end of the day. Maybe until you have another snowfall and covers it all up again. But that's kind of what I picture when he's saying, wash me and, and purge me with hyssop, but he's, wash me and I'll be whiter than the snow. There's just this covering that God gives us. And he also mentions a relief from the crushing weight. This weight of sin made him feel that his bones were broken. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you feel the weight of your sin on that level was just so heavy on you that you almost can't move. You feel physical pain. And here's David helping us see the, the depths of his sin that he just feels broken. But the grips of the results of this cleansing also helps him with a renewed joy, renewed spirit of joy and gladness. So the fourth action of repentance is that David realizes that a pure heart and steadfast spirit can only come from God. Look at verse nine through 12, probably the most popular section of the scripture. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you ever want to really dive deep into this? Look up on YouTube an artist named Keith Green. Keith Green's an old school artist, but he has amazing lyrics, but he just takes this song and puts it to music. And even this morning, as I was getting ready to come up here on this stage, I just listened to it and closed my eyes. Because you can almost hear David singing this and embracing the fact that he needs renewal. And he asks four things of God here. He asks first, just because I'm channeling my inner Gary here, they all start with R. But four things he asks for. Number one, he asks for a reset. Verse nine, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. He asks for a reset. I know I'm dating myself here, 
But back when Atari came out, now some of you are like, what is Atari? Well, Atari is like the great, great, great grandfather of Xbox, if you want to put it that way. And so back in the day, you couldn't restart a game from your controller. You actually had a wire that went to the system. And so I sat next to the uh, whole system conveniently when I play Atari with my brother because he's older and he was better at it than me. See, I said it, Johnny, you got it on on, on a recording that he was better than me. And so I'm sitting next to this thing. You know why? Because when he'd start killing me in a game, you know what I would do? Reset. And then he'd punch me and I'd cry and then we'd start playing again. And that's what would happen. And David here is asking, he's saying, reset, please, hit the reset button, blot it out, remove it. He needs a reset, but he's also asking number two for renewal. In verse 10, create in me a clean heart, renew this right spirit within me. He longs for that time where he was connected with God and he had this spirit that was close to him and this spirit he felt was departed from him. And then number three, he's asking for a relationship in verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now God does not leave us when we sin. He doesn't run away from us. Oh, there she goes again. There he goes again. I'm out. God is always there. But when we sin against God and we need to repent, there's a feeling that God is gone. There's a feeling that we get, a reality that that God is removed from relationship and the ultimate death, the ultimate pain of hell, again, is that missing relationship between you and God. And as David sinned and as he got callous to this sin, it felt like God was gone and he didn't have this relationship and he's asking for this relationship to return. And lastly, number four, the things he asks of God is he asks for restoration. In verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a a willing spirit. He asks for this restoration. So finally, the fifth action of repentance is that David recognizes the result of pure forgiveness. What is the result when you're forgiven When you realize your repentance is accepted by God, what is the result? Look at verse 13. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Verse 13, he exclaims this fact. In verse 14, he's saying, I'm going to speak of this. I'm going to share of the restoration. I'm going to share of what repentance has brought me. He's sharing the great message of forgiveness. And in this pattern, people get to see authenticity. When you follow this pattern of repentance, people see that you're not a phony Christian. 
That you're not just going through the motions, but they see the raw emotion, the raw passion, the reality that you've sinned against them. They hear it from your, your lips and they see that you're not just pretending that it's actually something that God's doing in you that's changing you. He mentions a growing attitude of praise. Can people hear you praising God audibly? Can people hear you speak of the greatness of God and speak of how amazing God is and especially the fact that when you repented of your sin that God restored you? Can people hear that from your lips? Is it a common thing in your life? Or do you say, well, this is a personal relationship, right? They don't need to hear anything from me. Well, apparently you don't really read scripture very well because the reality is when God does a work in your life, he changes you to the point that you speak and you can't help but speak. You can't help but exclaim it. What do you have to offer God? He says right here in verse 16, you're not delighting in these sacrifices, but instead it's a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a repentant heart. It's no more pretending that you are better than you really are. Christianity is so freeing because it it, it takes away the idea that we have to pretend and that we have to be something we're not. We get to relax and actually be sinners who are saved by grace, not continuing to sin so that grace will abound, but the reality is we're going to continue to sin until we're renewed, until we're glorified with Christ. And this renewal comes from repentance. You know, when preparing to share my faith back in high school, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't really have much of a story. I kind of be shy about that. I kind of feel like I've heard all my whole life growing up uh, as a pastor's kid, I would hear people tell these sensational stories of, of repentance and restoration and whether they were drug addicts or alcoholics or uh, abusers or whatever it was, you know, I would hear these stories and think, man, my, my testimony is not really much at all. Mine's kind of boring. And I kind of felt intimidated in the idea to even share it because it was like, well, there's really not much to share. But God had to show me really quickly that I was dead wrong. That I had the same testimony that anybody else had. Because God saved me in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, he saved me from the evil, wretched, selfish, prideful young man I was and that I was becoming. But that transformation as a result of repentance was a powerful thing. No matter where you've come from or how you came to Jesus, you have a story to tell. And it's a story, hopefully, of repentance and restoration. And I pray to God that this week you will open your mouth and share it with others. So as we wrap this up, I know over the past five months we've all most likely had plenty of opportunities for repentance. I don't know about you, but I've apologized to my family more in the last five months than probably in the last 10 years. 
just being cooped up together, being uncertain of what's happening and things happening out of the ordinary. And it just ends up being sin. It ends up being lashing out. It ends up being whatever it is that you tend to go be For you, it's being consumed by worry or a complaining, cynical spirit or growing addiction to pornography or drinking too much alcohol or stepping out on your wife or husband or making excuses for lashing out at your family or some other unhealthy choice. Maybe uh, safety has become your idol in this time. Whatever it is, we all have made choices during this time or the last five months, but all these things at the root are riddled with idolatry. The fact is that we have all, uh, basically we all bow down to these idols of of pride, of, of selfishness, of safety, or whatever those things are. All these things, the, the things that David subjected himself to, the sins that he committed, It was all reduced to idolatry. It all can be reduced to this simple word. That we all, just from the the beginning of time, we all want to be the boss. We all want to be able to say how things are going, right? We want to make our own choices regardless of the consequences. But in Christianity, it's different. We need to see and we need to do as David did and recognize our sin for what it is. Sin against a holy and righteous God. We need to humble ourselves, stop idolizing things, people, and circumstances and find our fulfillment in living for him. And some of you right now are are thinking to yourself, when things get back to normal, then I'll be okay. What's normal? God has taught us a great lesson, hasn't he? Over the last five months, that there is no normal. And whatever you build up and thought was normal is not. And whatever way you kind of worked your life to be and whatever pattern you developed to make it look a certain way, God has kind of pulled the rug out from under you. What a perfect opportunity for repentance. What a great place that God has us to be vulnerable and and sensitive to his spirit. So maybe, including myself first, we all need to wake up each morning begging God to create in us a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within us. Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful. Thankful for your love, Thankful for your mercy and your grace. God, we uh, come before you like David, just asking for you to do something in us that we can't do for ourselves. Lord, we, we can't make things right on our own. We need you to create in us a clean heart. By ourselves, we are full of sin. By ourselves, we choose idolatry. Lord, like David, wash us, make us clean. Allow us to be renewed and restored. Lord, for those maybe listening that don't know you, have never trusted you as their savior, help them to know right now, wherever they are, that they can take the time to realize they're a sinner, admit that they're a sinner, call on your name for salvation and know that you 
The one who died on the cross and paid the price for our sin will save us and save them. Lord, we thank you that you forgive us. We thank you that you restore us. And bless us as we go throughout this week as we focus on that. Help us speak words of life and restoration to others. In your name we pray, amen.